In this episode of Colorado Experience, quench your curiosity and learn how thirsty miners started a liquid gold rush that began Colorado's journey to become the beer state. And now, Colorado Experience. Cheers to beers. Beer is one of the most popular beverages in Colorado. It's actually the third most popular drink in the world, after life's other necessities, water and tea. But how did brewed grains become so ingrained in Colorado? While Native Americans made mash brews here 800 years ago, what we think of as beer today arrived with the gold rush. You see pictures of miners, they're down in the ground 16 hours a day. When they come up, they want beer. To be able to relax, don't worry, have homebrew. That's what it takes to be a winner. When I started homebrewing in 1970, you heard about, oh, my grandfather used to make beer during Prohibition, and they used to be in the bathtub, and the bottles used to explode underneath the cellar steps. No one was concerned with getting rich. People were really concerned with making great beer, trying to make people happy, and making sure you didn't lose your shirt. From immigrants looking for a new home to home brewing, from brawling frontier saloons to a booming craft beer industry, this liquid gold floats the culture, economy, and lifestyle of the Centennial State. Cheers to beers. Featuring Jason Hansen, Chief Creative Officer at History Colorado. Beer is a city beverage and it requires enough infrastructure to have supply lines. Heidi Harris, Coors Archivist at Miller Coors. Beer did get unfortunately swept up in the Women's Temperance Union's big movement. John Hickenlooper, Colorado Governor and Founder of Wincoop Brewing Company. We'd sit down on the loading dock on a Saturday and we'd see tumbleweeds blow down Winecoop Street. Kim Jordan, co-founder and board chair at New Belgium Brewing Company. Colorado attracts all of these brewers to come once a year and taste one another's beers. Charlie Papazian, author of The Complete Joy of Home Brewing and founder of the Great American Beer Festival. There were 750 people at the first festival. 40 beers, 20 breweries. Travis Rupp, beer archaeologist at Avery Brewing Company. I think with Saloon Life, they really were trying to find a bit of the old country and the new country. And Dave Thomas, author, historian, and brewer at Dostal Alley Brew Pub. All beers sold in the late 19th century were virtually sold at the brewery. This episode of Colorado Experience was written and directed by Carol L. Fleischer and edited and prepared for radio by Sean Ender. The production team includes Julie Spear, Eric Hernandez, and Clarissa Guy. Starting in 1859, tens of thousands of men developed gold fever and started heading west. When gold was discovered, they needed miners. Well, most of the people that knew about hard rock mining were Europeans. They came here from Germany, from Italy, from Cornwall, from Wales. They had beers there, older countries and older traditions of beer. And so they wanted beer, a very thirsty business. This idea of people trying to make a new start, coming out here, hoping to make it big and break into a new part of their own life and their own world, but they brought a lot of stuff with them and Colorado became kind of a melting pot of those cultures. I think with Saloon Life, they really were trying to find a bit of the old country and the new country. 
all beer sold in the late 19th century was virtually sold at the brewery. People would come and bring growlers. The term growlers actually originated from the tin cans that miners would take down in with their lunches. After they had their lunch and then when they came up out of the mine, they'd use that same can to go to the brewery and get their beer. As they walked, carbon dioxide would come out of the beer and make the tin lid growl. During the early days of the gold rush, when Denver was just a sepia-toned collection of shacks, merchants were rushing to Denver hoping to supply the miners and strike riches for themselves. Two of those merchants were Frederick Solomon and John Good, and both of them seemed to have looked around town and realized you could get a lot for a couple pinches of gold dust, but one thing that you couldn't get was beer. There are four basic ingredients in beer, water, grain, yeast, and hops. The pure Rocky Mountain water was definitely here and grain was plentiful, but yeast and hops were in short supply in Colorado in 1859. Beer is a city beverage and it requires enough infrastructure to have supply lines that will bring the hops, the barley, the yeast. Whiskey was really the drink of choice in those early days and that's because whiskey travels well. You can ship it across the plains. Beer was something that didn't travel well. Before pasteurization and individual bottling and railroads to move fast, if you were to ship beer from St. Louis to Denver, it could easily spoil along the way. Even though whiskey was easier to transport, bartenders could certainly increase their profit margins by cutting it with all kinds of things, but you don't want to cut it with water. So they got creative about the things that they would add to help it retain its kick. Gunpowder, tobacco juice, just all kinds of terrible things. So without poison and with only about 4% alcohol, beer became the health drink of choice on the Western frontier. Adolf Coors, how did he manage to make his way here to the United States? It's very sad, obviously, that his family was in just utter dire straits, losing both parents, I think, within eight months of each other due to tuberculosis. And he was trying to make a way to get his brothers and sisters out of orphanage, and then eventually managed to take this risk and get out of the country and head for a new start. He had stowed away on a ship to make his way to the United States from Germany. And it was something that Adolf was so embarrassed about, which is maybe a testament to how upstanding of a gentleman he was, that he had done this thing that was illegal. According to the historic record, he did pay for that fare because he just couldn't handle the fact that he took something of becoming such a, a millionaire in his own right so quickly with his new start in Colorado. But apparently that's how he made his way here and it was something that they tried to keep under wraps for a long time. Now I think with the way the story is told anymore and the fascination with beer history in general, it's kind of a nice story to know that this guy really went from such rags to riches that he had to hop on a boat completely illegally to get here. When Adolph Sr. first got to Golden, Colorado, it was a, really a frontier town. There was very few businesses here. It was just small mining town at the base of the foothills. It was the definition of Wild West. He saw these artesian wells coming up through the ground, saw the beautiful mesas on both sides of Golden, and tasted the water and said, this would be good for making beer. In the latter part of the 19th century, 
Adolf Coors Company survived when many other breweries came and went. But prohibition would soon change everything. The Colorado Christian Women's Temperance Union was a big advocate for getting Colorado dry. And Adolph Sr. realized, thanks to that group being so vocal, that prohibition was going to occur sooner in Colorado rather than in the rest of the country. Temperance movement nationwide really started because of that perception that the gin houses, the whiskey, and all that that was being drunk in taverns, it really was over the top. And so the movement was really about shutting down distilled spirits. Beer was considered a beverage of moderation. Beer did get unfortunately swept up in the Women's Temperance Union's big movement, and it really went against a lot of the people who were living in Golden's ideology because a lot of them were good Germans and they liked to drink their beer. Coors, like all breweries, had to dump their beer, which is unfortunate. Before Prohibition actually started, Adolf Sr. was able to start investing in other companies. He started the Coors Porcelain Company in 1910. They also started production of malted milk in 1912. Coors was one of only a handful of breweries left standing when Prohibition ended in 1933. By the time World War II started, more breweries were in production, and the U.S. government ordered that 15% of all beer be set aside for troops as essential for morale. Just a decade after Prohibition, beer consumption grew by 50%. There were a number of people, a lot of them happened to be veterans, GIs returning from either World War II or Cold War assignments overseas where they had tasted other styles of beer. And they came back to the United States and they couldn't find the types of beer that they had enjoyed elsewhere. And a few of them started to figure out how to make their own. And it was really a sort of underground movement for a long time, not least of which because it was illegal to homebrew beer. The Repeal Act actually did not legalize homebrewing beer. That didn't happen until Jimmy Carter. You start to see people, especially in the 1970s, moving to Colorado for the lifestyle. It's a quality of life choice, and they figure out how to make a living once they get here. Some of those people figured out that they could sell beer. A handful of homebrewing pioneers led the way just as the Gold Rush explorers had done a century earlier. Home brewing is the ability to reproduce the, the variety of beer that this country used to have. Craft brewing started with Charlie Papazian's book, Joy of Home Brewing. There have always been home brewers. Even in the history books, you'll go back and, and you'll see little stories about home brewers and how they were getting their malt and hops. They would have to go to the commercial brewery to get their malt and hops and yeast in order to brew. Charlie Papazian said that he got into brewing beer because he noticed that beer made people happy. If you're sitting around drinking vodka all night, it makes people drunk. But if you're sitting around enjoying beers, it makes people happy. Oh, what do I love about great beer? How it puts people together in a collaborative, communicative, 
creative innovation mode. And that's just part of it. Of course, there's the beer itself and the flavor and the creation of a liquid that a lot of people seem to enjoy. Well, that'll take a little while to uh, settle, but the best beer in the world takes time. The creation of beer is both the result of art and science and a soul, which is kind of indescribable, but it has a lot to do with the people that are making it, the reasons why they're making it, their attitude about life, and wanting to improve the quality of people's lives. Charlie Papazian is one of the people that we all need to be thanking for the craft beer revolution. He had homebrewed a little bit when he was in college. When he got to Boulder, he found a community sort of formed around the homebrew. He started offering classes. People started having these great homebrewing parties up in the mountains. It was called Beer and Steer. It was this great weekend event where they would roast a steer over a spit and everyone would come together with their latest homebrews. They'd keep them cold in a bin filled with snow that they'd hauled down from higher elevation and trade recipes, trade tastes. There's over a thousand students that I taught in the Denver, Boulder, Metro, Front Range area. And it brought people together. And of course, when you've had a few beers, you get all kinds of great creative ideas. And let's party. Let's celebrate what we're doing. This is before the internet before it was easy to share, before there were even good recipes out there to share. They were inventing a lot of these things. They were experimenting with them. The inspiration for the American Home Brewers Association, which I founded and created in 1978, was the result of having too much homebrew. Oh, that good beer. Some of my homebrew students and I were enjoying homebrew one evening, and we had this idea of wouldn't it be cool to start a newsletter to communicate recipes and share ideas? The idea morphed from a newsletter to a magazine to the American Home Brewers Association that created the magazine. Sometimes you make decisions that you shouldn't be making, but they turn out okay after all. When you're a home brewer and all your friends are raving about your home brewed product, home brewers then say, well, what's the next step for us? Next step for us is to go commercial, to sell the beer that we produce. So they'll start small, they'll get a little bit bigger, and that's still going on today. Most of the craft brewers today started off as home brewers, started off reading Charlie's book. It is really one of the reasons why I think we see such a large number of breweries here in Colorado is we had a man like Charlie Papazian, he was like our Johnny Appleseed of craft beer. Charlie Papazian not only started a brewing revolution in and around Boulder, he would create what would become the international mecca of craft brewing. But in the early 1980s, his vision faced skeptical colleagues and a public palate that wasn't yet thirsty for unique beers. That would soon change. The Great American Beer Festival was a result of my traveling to England and visiting the Great British Beer Festival and being inspired by the notion, the challenge of thinking about, well, does America have a beer culture it could celebrate? And to most people, the answer was no. But in my mind, I thought there was something to that idea. We wanted people to think about the beer, 
We wanted people to learn about the people who were making it. We wanted people to understand the ingredients that went into the beer, the process. We wanted people to appreciate that different kinds of beer went very well with different kinds of food and approach beer from a culinary aspect. You know, there's an art to making beer and there's also an art to enjoying beer. There were 750 people at the first festival. 40 beers, 20 brewers. Finding beers for that first beer festival was a challenge. The Great American Beer Festival used to be a hard sell. We were out in the streets selling tickets during the beer festival, <laughs> not as long as uh, 10 years ago. Now it sells out within hours. That's a lot of tickets. Now there are several thousand breweries, more than 8,000 beers that get judged at this competition, and over 50,000 people that come to the Great American Beer Festival. So it has become not only a beer event, it has become a cultural event. Colorado attracts all of these brewers to come once a year and taste one another's beers, and it really is sort of at the center of our movement. There are about 6,700 craft brewers in the United States right now, and we hear that there are about another 1,500 in planning. It's a big movement. The first craft brew pub in Colorado opened in 1988, and it was not in some fashionable neighborhood. It was on Denver's Skid Row. Wincoop Brewing would forever change Denver and its politics, and a brewer would find his way to the governor's mansion. John Hickenlooper was a geologist who lost his job during the economic downturn in the early 80s. The story goes that he took what he had remaining of his funds and went on a road trip, ran into a brew pub out in California, and thought, this is a really cool concept. This could maybe work in Denver. So then I kind of got involved in trying to lay it out and, and got a book from the library on how to write a business plan. And I've been a home brewer since like 1971. And you know, we started working on it, but it still took two years. It took him a while to line up the funding. He loves telling people that even his own mother wouldn't invest. It was something that people hadn't seen a restaurant that makes its own beer. Who's gonna go to that? What's the point? You can buy beer and serve it with your meal if you want. We have plenty of cores available. Why would anyone want these higher priced beers that you're making here on site? But eventually he and his partners lined up the funding, secured a building in lower downtown Denver, which at the time was not the same as the hip, trendy neighborhood that it is today. It became the Wincoop Brewery. It was popular from the get-go. The story is that on opening night, they were selling beer for just a couple of quarters just to get the word out about the brewery. And the bar was so packed that Hickenlooper was wishing he had doubled the price because it would have paid off the debt faster. In the 1980s, most people just loved beer. And they were less concerned with how much money they were going to make and more concerned that they didn't lose money. That was the goal was, you know, I couldn't get my own mother to invest, but her sister did invest, and I want to make sure that the 10 grand from Aunt Janie didn't go down the drain. So when we signed our lease, end of 1987, our rent was a dollar a square foot per year. Now the rent's down there at 40, 50 bucks a square foot. At that time, it was an abandoned warehouse district. We'd sit down on the loading dock on a Saturday and we'd see tumbleweeds blow down Winecoop Street. We were the first restaurant to open in downtown Denver in five years. 
And all these other restaurateurs said, gosh, if Hickenlooper and those knuckleheads could have a big hit restaurant in downtown, then we know what we're doing, we can do even better. So all of a sudden, there were two more brew pubs opened in 92. There were seven other restaurants that opened in downtown Denver in 1992. John Hickenlooper, former geologist turned brew pub entrepreneur, rode his success into politics, first becoming mayor of Denver, then governor of Colorado. He still enjoys a cold beer with some old friends. Beer is a big deal in Colorado for a lot of reasons. One is we were a pioneer state for beer, and we have that brand attached to us. It is connected to innovation and something new and fresh. It's a part of our economy now. I mean, it's, you, we're talking, I don't know, probably 15,000 jobs now, and all kinds of economic development in smaller towns. There are now over 350 breweries, probably be 400 by the end of this year. I mean, that's just a big deal. Most important of everything is that it's helped make us a beacon for young people. We have more live music venues in metropolitan Denver now than Austin or Nashville. We have more breweries per capita in metropolitan Denver than any other metropolitan area. I mean, we've been the number one economy in the country for the last two years. And that attraction of young people and entrepreneurs has been a big part of it. And beer is a big part of that. I think the craft brewing and Colorado were a natural combination. The population here tends to be pretty educated, which means that they travel and sort of see beer culture. The quality of water is very good here. And I think that combination was really important for craft brewing in this state. New Belgium was one of the first breweries that were giving people a chance to pair that lifestyle with a delicious craft beer. I had a keg of sunshine imported to my wedding in eastern Washington before it was really distributed there because for us it became so associated with the taste of home. Like this was part of being a Coloradan was having these great beers that other places didn't really enjoy in the mid-90s. When Jeff Liebisch and I first started New Belgium, we were thinking about starting a craft brewery that specialized in Belgian-style beers. Beer is to Belgium what wine is to France. You have malt, water, hops, and yeast. And in Belgium, they say the fifth ingredient is creativity and the sixth is passion. I think as brewers, we do get very attached emotionally too of the beer that we produce. We almost see it as defining us. Hops are the seasoning of beer. Malt provide the backbone, the soul, the color, the flavor of the beer and the alcohol. All the alcohol comes from malt. The hops are the seasoning. You can get citrusy flavors from hops, you can get mango, fresh fruit, tobacco, all kinds of different flavors from different varieties and even different growing conditions. We publish our recipes basically on our website for homebrewers. If they wanted to try to recreate White Rascal, our best-selling beer, they can go see what it is. But it won't taste like the beer that we produce. And it's because how someone processes the beer will affect its flavor. It's kind of that really cool artistic component to it. The art of beer brewing is an ancient one, and it's one man's job to make everything old new again. Travis Rupp has the enviable title of beer archaeologist. Most of my research has been in ancient Europe and the Mediterranean, Near East and Middle East as well. What I try to do is figure out how the ancients were making a specific kind of beer or beer style, use ingredients that they used then, and I bring it back to Avery Brewing Company and reconstruct it as a part of our Ales of Antiquity series. 
I think it's very possible that people were producing something of an alcoholic drink maybe as early as 8,000 BCE. One thing that's been proven is that as little as 1% alcohol by volume in a liquid will kill up to 99% of the bacteria that's in it. And I think the ancients figured that out really, really quickly because they had a lot of water sources that weren't clean, weren't safe for them to drink. And they realized that if they went through this specific process, and maybe it was as simple as taking the water out and letting it sit with some grain or some fruit or something in it, that you could consume it and you weren't sick by it. And there was also a high nutritional value to it as well. So that's probably why it came about. I think it was just a safe option. From an ancient health drink to one of today's most popular libations, beer has been our constant companion. But what about tomorrow? Colorado is now dubbed the Napa Valley of Beer. Can the state maintain that allure? There was that rush, the gold rush of beer, if you will, in Colorado, where more and more breweries were popping up. And eventually what happened was we kind of have saturated the market to a degree, and it's kind of worked in the favor of the big guys a little bit. They're buying up a lot of breweries that were making a name for themselves, had enough of the market share that they could grab them, take it for their own. But what's an interesting testament to that is when those breweries started to get bought up by the big conglomerates like that, there was a huge backlash from their fans. There were pictures and videos of people pouring beer out in the streets because they were boycotting their favorite brewery because they had sold. Craft beer drinkers want to be identified as people that support independent craft breweries. They're willing to go to those extremes to hold on to their principles. Craft breweries have really taken off and it's really nice to have a cozy place to go after a day in the mountains, skiing or hiking or whatever. A nice, or a cozy place to meet your friends and have a final beer at the end of the day. Craft brewers provide that. It's not a place to drink your beer and mope about what's going on in the country. It's a place to celebrate what you've done during the day. I've been told many times I have the gift of gab, but I get even more gabby when I've been drinking beer, and I think we all do. There is that idea of having that pint in your hand consuming it while you're talking to other people. Spirits and wine can be a little bit more of a individual thing. And I think that's also why it marries well with the state of Colorado because this is a very social state. We like to get out and do things with other people. We make beer for a living. So if you can't have fun making beer, that's a bit of a problem. You need to kind of look at your fun meter, I think. And I think at New Belgium, we've always felt like we're in addition to plying an ancient art form, we're also creating a community. Beer in Colorado is extremely popular today. And I think that it's become so popular that it literally is just, it's something that we almost all of us do. It's something that kind of makes us human. That social construct of Colorado is, let's go out to the brewery tonight, or what bar has the greatest tap list? And I think that's the legacy, is that it stood the test of time and to the degree that it is absolutely blown up in this state, and it has defined us. We will always be a beer state. Dynamite. Excellent. What a setting. Drinking at the bar Helps the dull and aching heart What could be turns to could have been I'll have
Major funding for Colorado Experience is provided by listeners like you. Thank you. And History Colorado State Historical Fund, supporting projects throughout the state to preserve, protect, and interpret Colorado's architectural and archaeological treasures. Create the future, honor the past. To watch or listen to this or other episodes, visit rmpbs.org forward slash C-O-E-X. For behind-the-scenes photos, fun facts, sneak peeks, promos, information on upcoming episodes, community screenings, and so much more, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Colorado Experience. With producers and directors in Denver, Pueblo, Durango, Grand Junction, and Colorado Springs, Colorado Experience creates in-depth local stories throughout the state. Did you know that viewers can select an episode through the Viewer's Choice Award? By suggesting and voting on topics, you could choose a Colorado Experience episode. Watch for the announcement and make sure to share your Colorado story. For more information, go to rmpbs.org slash coex.